This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. So with money, I think part of it is just us being willing to say we can experiment, we can do things different. We are not so untrustworthy that we can't try something, try something that could be better. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Olshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Most of us don't spend too much time thinking about the nature of money. We take it for granted, like electricity or the internet. You don't need to know how a technology works in order to use it. But recent developments in the economy and politics and new innovations in financial technology have forced us to pay more attention to one of the weirdest and most important of human inventions. As I've said before on this show, money itself is just an idea. We totally made it up, and therefore we can keep upgrading it. With the explosion of digital payments, we now think of money less and less as something you can carry in your wallet or hold in your hand. Money is this invisible force that can appear or disappear from your bank account or magically move through your phone. With the advent of cryptocurrency, money feels even more amorphous. I've heard Bitcoin described as featureless glass beads you can't see or touch. But crypto demonstrates how little the concept of money has actually changed. All money is virtual and always has been. That's Felix Martin, author of Money, the Unauthorized Biography. Money, he says, is our operating system, the software on which our society runs, a technology for measuring, recording, and transferring value. Value is obviously just a social relation. It doesn't exist in reality. It's not material. Money is this common myth that we all buy into. That's Philip Deal. He's president of a company called U.S. Money Reserve. He's also the former director of the U.S. Mint and was chief of staff of the U.S. Treasury Department. It's a mutually agreed agreement within a culture about its value and the stability of that value and especially the trustworthiness of that value are key to its viability as a means of transactions. Money is all about trust and faith. The root of the word credit means to believe. Money relies on all of us agreeing to a value and trusting that a seemingly worthless unit of account like the U.S. dollar is going to hold value over time. When they stamp our money with in God we trust, what really matters is that we have faith in our institutions and in each other. I like to use the example, the most simple one. You go to a restaurant and you order $100 worth of food. Before you finish eating, those dollars are still in your bank account. 
Rowan Gray is Assistant Professor of Law at Willamette University and President of the Modern Money Network. He's also one of the key people with Philip Deal to conceptualize the trillion-dollar platinum coin. If you don't know what that is, we'll explain a little later. Gray's restaurant analogy helps explain the underpinnings of a lot of our economy. Until the bill is settled, the restaurant is basically feeding customers on a promise to pay, an IOU. You haven't paid yet. But from the restaurant's point of view, right, if if they had to stop everything at that moment and do their taxes, that'd be money that they've got coming in. That's an asset for them, right? That's income receivable. So that money is sort of in two places at once, in a sense. It can't be spent in the same way in two places at once. But in terms of the wealth there, the fact that I have eaten and not yet paid creates credit in that gap in the space. And the entire economy is built on that kind of credit all over the place. We don't engage in spot transactions where everybody just hands over something and then runs away at a you know at a moment's notice. We engage in time-displaced payment. The addition of time to a transaction sets up the need for credit. Not every purchase we make is instantaneous. How did we get the system we have today? We commonly think barter inspired the creation of money. The ancient society somehow decided that cowrie shells were easier to carry around than cows. So people started using things like seashells as money because it just made trading more efficient. That story of us sort of starting with barter and then creating money is itself a myth. There isn't any anthropological evidence for a world where we started with barter. According to Gray, money enters the picture to help solve disputes that might otherwise turn violent. In his view, money was never just about making life more convenient for merchants. It has always, on some level, also been about the power of the state. The reality is, as soon as we started sort of having large social groups where relationships went from beyond face to face, you know, it wasn't like I owe Jim a favor, you know, Alice knows me from church. It was like, I don't know you at all. And the only reason we're interacting is because we get something out of it. And if you screw me on this, I'll take you to court or we go to war. In that moment, once we had societies that big, then something that looked like money starts to emerge. Some quantification of social legal force. Either you kill my brother or you pay me some number. And that number becomes an alternative to violence. As societies got bigger, it became in the ruler's interest to have a simple shared means of transaction. As a way of collecting taxes and tabulating their assets, the idea of a currency was practical. It turns out this may have been why writing was invented in the first place, not for jotting down history or poetry, but to keep track of taxes and debts. Now, from the point of view of the sovereign, the taxation of barter transactions was extraordinarily difficult. But the taxation of a cash transaction that were rigorously recorded was much easier. And sovereigns wanted to tax those transactions, not only for the sake of funding the crown and his luxuries and all that, but also in order to wage war. And the desire to wage war was one of the great drivers of the invention of money. The origin of what we think of as cash today is closer to that of a written IOU. In America, the need for a centralized currency really became clearer during the Civil War. So in the Civil War, the Union government's thinking, what do we do? We give people an IOU. 
We all thought of that when we were seven, right? And trying to pay our sibling for something, you know, when we wanted a candy bar. Christine Dazan is a professor at Harvard Law School. As she explains, the complex system of credit we have today goes all the way back to Lincoln's greenbacks. The North has like $2 million in the Treasury. Estimates for the cost of war will be $350 million at the outset. What Congress does is start paying soldiers and suppliers with credits, with IOUs. These were the greenbacks. Pays the soldiers, pays the suppliers, and tells those people that they can pass on those greenbacks and that those greenbacks can be returned to the government for value on their taxes. A beautiful, simple, transparent moment of monetary invention. It works well. Greenbacks, like the dollar, were printed and spent into circulation as tax credits. A couple years later, Congress reinvents money. It charters banks, national banks, and it invites them to lend the United States in their promises to pay. And then the government takes those promises to pay. It gives the banks long-term bonds, issues bonds to the banks, takes the bank's promises to pay, the bank's banknotes, and spends those into circulations to soldiers and suppliers, assimilating those banknotes to the government's own credit notes, and takes those banknotes in taxes and then returns them to the banks. Before this system was invented, banknotes were issued by private banks that were scattered across the country, which posed a problem. Here's Philip Deal. The further you got away from that bank, the less certainty you had, the less knowledge you had about the reliability of that bank and therefore the reliability of their banknote. And a country could afford that kind of inefficiency and uncertainty only so long. And in the United States, it ended with the Civil War. Lincoln rationalized American currency by creating the greenback. And it replaced that Tower of Babel of all that different banknote currency and rationalized American currency. Money became centralized. To keep an increasingly complex economy stable, the government had to convince its people to trust that it could guarantee the money it created. Here's author and Cambridge University historian Jeff Ingham. If you lose trust in the government, that it's weak and it's powerless or it's threatened, then <laughs> it might break its promise to take your money. So, you know, then it's a stack of cards. The world as we know it is unimaginable without the monetary calculation, the calculus, the interdependencies, the debts, the debt repayments, and so on. We saw that in the Great Depression when many banks failed because their customers lost confidence in the system, and maybe for good reason. If we lose faith in our money system, we are probably also losing faith in our social ties. A strong currency is usually equated with a nation's political power. Ingham explains that this isn't just about military power, but something more instinctual. It's states and sovereignty and power and money. It's not just being able to afford a big navy and air force, but the physical power of strong states, they have strong currencies. Weak states have weak currencies. And so this is why people are nervous, because we know this intuitively. The securest way, the safest way to bring down a regime is to debauch the currency. It's the idea of sovereignty. And this is why, for example, the opposition to modern money theories is that they focus on the political nature of money. And all they're saying is, we have choices. 
there's no inherent value in money. Money is the technology. We can use it. So the best example I can think of is when the euro was being introduced. This was back in 1999. And some of us were really concerned that countries were going to be giving up a lot more than just the currency that they used to transact with. And the people who were really supporting the euro just basically thought, well, you know, Europe is like one big marketplace. We do a lot of trade between countries in Europe. And so one market needs one money. And Randy Ray and the other MMT economists and I, we were kind of thinking in a very different way. Basically, for us, it was, you know, one nation, one money. And the idea of giving up your currency meant giving up a whole lot more than just the token that you use to make exchanges and trades in. Some of those concerns that you had were borne out, too. You know, debt crises, members of the EU that were worsened, perhaps, by the fact that they didn't have a national currency. That's exactly right. You had a debt crisis and you had countries like Greece and others that really were in a position where they actually could not repay the debts that they had. And that's because all of the debt was now denominated in this currency called the euro that the Greek government and the Italian government and others couldn't issue. It wasn't a sovereign currency anymore. So they were basically borrowing in a foreign currency. And you saw what happened. And that was one of the things that we tried to warn about in the mid-1990s. They created a monetary union without creating a fiscal union. So in the U.S., you know, we have 50 states and territories, and everyone uses the U.S. dollar, right? We have a monetary union where the dollar is the currency for all 50 states and territories, but we also have a fiscal union, which means we have the U.S. Treasury that makes policy on behalf of all of the United States of America. And that doesn't exist in countries where the euro has been adopted as the currency. Rowan Gray agrees that it's hard to divorce money from political power. I think the problem is that we're not honest about what money is. I think the problem is that we do want to treat money as something that is purely physical or natural or designed to be apolitical. Whereas everything from our language to our choice of clothing is political. The idea that money, this fundamental thing, would not be political is its own form of politics. It's a sort of anti-politics, but it's very political as a claim. And so the question isn't, is it bad that money is political? It's what are the implications of us pretending it isn't? And I think the answer is that our monetary politics has gone a certain direction in the last few decades towards greater inequality, towards greater concentration of wealth and power. And we can change the rules of that game, just like you could introduce three-point shots to basketball or something. We can make different rules, create a different kind of game, maybe one that involves less killing of each other in the planet. But there's no limit to the money. If money is a game where we can change the rules, what will we make up next? That's after the break. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. 
Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we talked about money as a virtual concept and a public institution that depends on government power and our collective trust. Law professor Rowan Gray compared money to a game where we can change the rules when we need a new solution. He should know he helped advance a play no one had thought of actually using. One possible solution to the debt ceiling problem, a specially minted platinum coin worth one trillion dollars. So as part of the debt ceiling debate, the trillion dollar coin is being tossed around as a way to avoid any standoff between the two sides. The president can issue a platinum coin in any denomination. Treasury can mint it and then just print on it one trillion dollars. When the notion of a trillion dollar coin cropped up, at first a lot of people thought it was a joke. Ooh, a trillion dollar bill. That's a spicy meatball. I say go big or go home. About a $20 trillion coin. The idea was that the U.S. Mint would create a coin that would be worth $1 trillion, or any amount really, and deposit it into the Treasury's account at the Federal Reserve. That would allow the government to spend without breaching the debt ceiling limit some politicians in Congress want to hold to. The debt ceiling puts a limit on the amount of money the government is allowed to borrow at any one point in time. Refusing to raise the limit could force the government to default on payments it has already agreed to make. The trillion-dollar coin hasn't actually been minted, but legally, it turns out it could be. Philip Deal, who we heard from before the break, is former head of the U.S. Mint. He confirmed that by law, the U.S. Mint can create any denomination of proof platinum coin that the Treasury asks them to, and these coins aren't counted as part of the national debt. It would be minted and sent to the Fed. The Treasury would mark that as a trillion dollars in new spending authority. And then what that would do is it would make the debt limit moot. For as long as any government is willing to use the trillion dollar coin, it would take the debt limit threat off the table. That's an unexplored option we could use to fund all kinds of things. So it's a trillion-dollar margin. Now, it's not counted like tax revenue is. It's treated like a means of finance. Now, what that means that in the face of a debt limit confrontation is that $1 trillion would go onto the government's books like the sale of a bond but it's not counted as debt. And as a result, it opens up trillion dollars worth of spending that has already been committed to without having to sell the bonds. Some people have proposed this as a way to get around the debt ceiling standoffs we keep finding ourselves in, or as a way to give benefits to all Americans during COVID. Rowan Gray was instrumental in writing proposals to do just that. I was at law school during the first debt ceiling crisis under President Obama in 2011, and it just seemed like such an absolutely ridiculous situation to be in. 
And then I had been following various money blogs and a lawyer from Atlanta named Carlos Mucha proposed this analysis saying, hey, I think that there's actually pretty clear law on the books that says that the mint could just mint a very high value coin, sell it to the Federal Reserve. Gray checked this out with then mint director Philip Deal and found out it was true. The debt ceiling creates a quantitative cap on all the treasury debt that can be issued. Normally with coins, there's no cap. There's never been a point in the entire 200 plus year of the mint history where the president or the treasury secretary has called up the mint director and said, you've printed too many coins. Stop printing. No, it doesn't happen. There's no upper limit. Why do you think it is people have such a hard time wrapping their heads around the idea of the $1 trillion coin? I think for a lot of people, it just sounds too easy, right? You can't just make up money and solve all your problems. A lot of people don't realize that that's how so much of our money is created, that it's not produced on printing presses by the Treasury, but created just out of thin air by banks. Yeah, it's that old John Kenneth Galbraith line. I think we've talked about it before, where Galbraith said, the process by which money is created is so simple, the mind is repelled. I don't think people really understand how most of our money is actually created. I mean, if I walk into a a bank after we finish recording this podcast and I sit down with the loan officer and I ask to borrow money, if I'm given that loan, the loan officer is basically going to do something that types new money into my bank account. That's where the money's going to come from. Banks have a charter to create money, and they create money when they create a loan. And I could walk out of the bank with a lot of extra digits in my account that got there simply by virtue of the fact that somebody typed them in. Just a few keystrokes and poof, you have, you know, $100,000. Yeah, so the coin is just another way to do that. And if you think about it, bond sales the way we normally think of government sort of covering the extra costs of its spending, work in a really similar way. Government just sells treasury bonds and the numbers get typed into its account. I think we're still stuck in a world where we assume that money has to meet our sensibilities. It has to make sense according to some common sense, even though that common sense has nothing to do with the problems that that governments have to deal with. None of us even know what a trillion dollars means. Here's the kicker. It's the size of a quarter. And if you can wrap your head around that, how it can be true, then you start to get closer to grasping that sort of what I like to call the big infinity sign in the sky. Which if you're a central banker, right, that's how you think all day, every day. You know that you have an infinity sign. You're trying to work out how to use it. And we're all so scared of it that we don't want to look up and start asking that question. I think that's what the coin at its best is. It's a license to look up and ask. Philip Deal says, like all human inventions, money is a double-edged sword. It accommodates very complex society in which we don't know each other. Therefore, we don't know whether we can trust each other or not. We're counting on some third party to give us money that we can trust. But because we focus so much on money, I think it does degrade our ability to recognize that in the end, really what all this is about is trust among human beings and each other. And that the money itself is a means of facilitating that trust and sometimes being a substitute for it. Rowan Gray agrees that money represents something beyond its face value. We have to be able to sort of take off the hat of the economy game 
and saying we can experiment, we can do things differently. We are not so untrustworthy that we can't try something, try something that could be better. And we have to trust ourselves as a population, as a democracy again. I think we've been very scarred to not do that. And that's the biggest barrier. One of the most famous economists from the last century, Hyman Minsky, is well known for saying that anyone can create money. The trick, he said, is to get it accepted. That quote feels really timely. With new cryptocurrencies popping up every day, seemingly anyone can now create money. But how close are we to cryptos becoming as widely accepted as the dollar? You'll have to wait until part two to find out. This episode has a cliffhanger? It has a cliffhanger. I couldn't resist. And a heads up, we're going to keep you in suspense a little bit longer. Next week, we're bringing you a special episode with some advice that might just help you keep your New Year's resolutions. Until then, here's a sneak preview of part two. There's no crystal ball here in terms of how it's going to play. Now, my fervent hope is that regulators will understand that the whole reason we had these innovations is because certain things about the existing system were not working, or at least were not working for a significant proportion of people in the world, of global citizens, right? So there are problems there that have to be fixed. And thinking about the broad category of all these different kinds of currencies has the potential to address some of these issues. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. If you like what you heard and you'd like more people to know about the show, could you take a minute to rate and write us a review? It's the single biggest thing you can do to help others discover the show. Thanks to Christine Dazan, Rowan Gray, Jeff Ingham, Felix Martin, and Philip Deal. To learn more about the history of money, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Mavic-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard. Our researcher is Alana Myers. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Melissa Pons. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea. Technology can make the world better. At UST, we're building a future where people everywhere are empowered to live better lives. It's transformation you can feel. And you don't have to do it alone. We believe in the power of technology to transform businesses and build a better world.